Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. The last time we were together, the message was titled The Throne Room of God, which was really cool because you, this, it says a door, but when I think of a door, it looks like I think of a wooden door, like in four, it said a door opened in heaven, but it was a portal. It was all of a sudden you could look at the sky, you look at the stars, stars, and all of a sudden you see an entrance to a dimension that you normally wouldn't be invited to. So if you didn't get it, it was a really cool message. Just the things that the Apostle John envisions when he goes up to heaven, the angels and the chorus and and God and the colors and the sea of glass and the living creatures. Boy, how exciting that is. You know, one thing, a few things that I didn't see when we looked at the throne room and we got invited up to see God's place where he's in control and he does business. There's a few things I didn't see. I didn't see news crews. I didn't see CNN. I didn't see Fox News up there, thank God, with all their cameras and their spin and stuff. So that wasn't in the throne room of heaven. I also didn't see um, a section for Republicans and Democrats. I didn't see that in the throne room of God, and I'm happy for that too. Sometimes even with Christians, they, they get into their balkanized corners based on their political ideologies, and they don't reach across, and this goes for both sides. Another thing, I could go on for hours, but another thing that I didn't see when I looked at the throne room of heaven is I didn't see a black section and a white section and a Spanish section. That doesn't exist either. So how refreshing. You know, I remember one of the things that I said when I taught that was that I want to divert your attention away from the stuff that you're seeing in the world and see what God's place looks like. So what a blessing that was. And today the message is titled, Who is Worthy? Who is worthy? We're going to talk about what that word worthy means. And then we're going to talk about who actually is worthy. Worthy for what? Well, we're going to check that out. And we're going to look at this in five parts. So let's jump in. Revelation 5, verse 1. The Apostle John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll scroll, like the old rolled up pieces of paper, written inside and on the back, written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So one out of five is, what's the scroll? You know, today we go on our computers, we get mail, we get, you know, and we we have to kind of go back thousands of years into the culture. Well, let's talk about who's holding the scroll. If we go back to last month, um, God the Father, he's holding the scroll. And it appears in order to read what's written on the scroll, because it's all rolled up, is that each of the seven seals had to be broken. So if it was an important document, a government document, uh, they would have these wax seals or some type of clay seal. And then the signet of the government authority was put in that seal. So you could see that, whoa, I shouldn't, I, if I don't have the authority, I shouldn't open this scroll because it's under penalty of law. Uh, and then you would either break the, the clay seal or the wax seal and keep breaking them until you can open the scroll and read what's inside of it. Interesting. 
Again, what is this scroll? Well, uh, I believe, and I've talked to many friends who teach the Bible, that this is the title deed to the earth. Now, you buy a house, you pay it off, the county government sends you a deed, you know, depending on where you live, etc., state, county. Uh, but this deed is very interesting because in those days, you wouldn't have... You know, there would be some vellum or some papyrus or some type of makeshift paper that they would do writing on one side. They would clean it up so that you could write nicely, and then it would be rolled up. But the backside would not be finished, so to speak, so there was nothing on it. But in an important document, especially a title deed to a property, it would be written on both sides. Very interesting. Um, there's a lot of information, Right. And there has to be a lot of information because if land is in dispute, the authorities need to know who it actually belongs to if you're arguing about it. There could be uh, surveys on there. There could be names, uh, all kinds of information on there. Okay, so people back then would read the scripture and go, yeah, this to me makes perfect sense. But for us in 2020, I kind of got to bring us back to that time period so that we can understand. Um, There would be a situation, especially in the Jewish laws, where if someone lost their property through a bad investment or it could be any, many other reasons, a forfeiture that uh, somebody else who was uh, near related, a near kinsman, right? Kinsman redeemer, the book of Ruth, that they could actually help that relative buy the property back and take it out of forfeiture. Uh, Jeremiah 32 speaks about this, Leviticus 25. Jesus was the near kinsman to Adam. I'm going to flesh this out. So this, there's a lot that has to be talked about in the first verse so that we can understand actually the rest of the book. Jesus is a near kin to Adam. He came in Adam's bloodline, right? Fully God goes into Adam's bloodline to redeem the world, sinners, back to God. Um, so the fact that Jesus went into Adam's bloodline means that he was, how does God do this stuff, folks? (laughs) It's intricate. It really is to wrap your mind around it. But um, so we know that Jesus is in Adam's bloodline. So he's a near kin. The near kin, according to Jewish law, also had to have the ability. It's nice if you want to buy your brother's property back, but if you have no money, they're going to say next, right? So Jesus also had the ability to buy back the physical creation. He bought back our souls, Right? That was the first step spiritually. The next step is a, a physical buying back of this horrible creation. And it's not horrible. It's horrible in the sense that sin has ruined it. Right? You see what's going on in politics. You see what's going on in race relations. This all happened because of the sinfulness of mankind. So Jesus had the ability, being fully God. Also, the near kinsman had to have the desire to buy it back. You know what I'm saying? You could say, oh, that brother of mine, he's always making bad deals. Hey, Joe, you want to buy back? No, look for somebody else. I'm not interested. Ask ask another brother. So So the near kinsman had to have the desire to buy back something that was forfeited. Of course, Jesus, because he so loved the world, right, had the desire not only to buy us back from the slave market of sin, but also to buy back the physical uh, creation that's been marred by sin. You got there's a two prong thing going on. The first time Jesus came was to save our souls, right? To save us spiritually. The second time he comes is to redeem the physical creation. Otherwise, it goes on in perpetuity, a mess, and that's not what God wants. 
So how did Adam forfeit the earth? Isn't it God's? Well, you see that in heaven, God has the original deed. And back in those days, they actually had two scrolls. And they were a perfect copy. One, like the municipal office, like we think about, the county office would hold. And they had a similar organization. And the other one went to the person who owned it at the time. Um, And if they had to forfeit it, that person would give it to the person that they forfeited to. But the county seat had the original document and would change it as necessary. So it's very uh, legal. It's very interesting. People say, oh, the Bible, it's a fairy tale. It's so simple. No, when you actually start to read it, you see there's a lot of depth in here that completely is parallel to things that we would understand. So what happened? Well, God creates the world and he creates the animals and he creates the trees and the vegetables and the ecosystem. And then he creates the man and then he creates the woman from the man. And then there's like a marriage ceremony. It's kind of cool. Okay, this is where Pastor Joe's going to give his personal opinion. Um, I teach the Bible, but whenever I wade into an area that we're not really sure of and I give my opinion, I tell you it's my opinion. You could reject it, not a problem, but you make sure that you accept the word. So my opinion is that God creates everything. He creates the man and the woman. He brings them together. He tells them to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. My opinion is that he gave creation as a wedding gift to Adam and Eve. It's my opinion. Either way, Adam had control over this beautiful creation. He had some control over it because God told him, it's yours. Tend it. Subdue it. Make it beautiful. Um, Have many children and, and fill it up. It's a big planet. Now, One thing I also have to say is when I say the earth, by extension, I also mean the universe. The earth doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? We have a solar system. We have a galaxy. We have stars. We have a lot of things in the the universe that are very intricate, physics-related. So when I talk about the earth, I'm also talking about the entire creation. It's neat stuff, isn't it? Like, this is the the first verse. We're going to start moving after here. Adam forfeits due to sin. He and his wife, um, they get tricked, they get scammed by the evil one, and they forfeit the whole creation to Satan. How do I know this? Because when Jesus comes down to the earth, Satan says, I have all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give them to you, son of God. If, I guess, I don't know, if I could conjecture here, if I'm trying to figure out how Satan thinks, he thought, well, Jesus was always God, but now he's taken the form of a man. Maybe he's a little weak. Maybe I can mess with his emotions a little bit. So he comes to Jesus. He tries to tempt him. He says, you can have all the kings of the earth. Just don't go to the cross. It's painful. It's miserable. It's, it's you know, you don't deserve it. You're pure. I'm throwing a bunch of things in there. But Jesus, of course, rejects Satan and says, I have to go to the cross to do this. But Satan did have the ability to give him these kingdoms of the earth. So he has, obviously, you look around, look at the world. He definitely has a hand in what's going on in this world. Um, Because God is perfect and God wouldn't want things the way they are in our country or overseas. But that's all going to change. So I look at this perfection. Everything was created perfect, gifted, and then sin cursed. And then forfeited. And then judgment. Judgment has to be meted out for sin. We're going to see those revelation judgments, redemption and remaking new heavens and the new earth, millennial kingdom. We were talking to some of the brothers before about the new Jerusalem and all the really cool things we're going to see in revelation. So it's very orderly. It's very legal. It's very uh, intricate. 
and it's intelligible. So Jesus is the heir. Psalm 2.8, Hebrews 1.2 in the New Testament say that Jesus is the heir of all things. Okay, verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. So I, the Apostle John, speaking about himself, I wept much. I cried because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. Even look at it. Right? So two out of five is there's this sadness over the fact that it appears initially that nobody is qualified to even look at the scroll, let alone take it break the seals, open it up, and do something with it, right? Transfer ownership, titleship, buy it back. And again, why is John weeping? Because he knows, he doesn't know a lot of things being up in heaven, but he knows that the earth, even in his time, in just prior to, in the first century, that the Roman government, this pagan government, controlled the world. So even in his limited knowledge, he knew that, this is a terrible place to live in perpetuity if sinful people are going to continue to run it. You know, so he's weeping. The strong angel issues a challenge. Now, is this Gabriel? Is it Michael? Is it another unknown angel? I have no idea. Says a strong angel. For some reason, we don't need to know. We're on a need-to-know basis when we read this book. <laughs> Whatever God wants us to know, we'll know. <laughs> Who is worthy? Did the angel's voices supernaturally penetrate through the entire earth, right? We talked about in heaven, under the earth. So it almost seems like this strong angel, his voice is just penetrating everywhere, every living creature who is worthy. He's putting out this clarion call and it comes back as a boomerang that it's, it's void. And nobody's able to do this. So the mood temporarily is, well, at least on John's end, is despair. Folks, the mood in our country is despair. The mood in our country for the last four months has been despair. But the good news is that God has a plan. And I think the frust- well, for the unsaved, they think humanism, secular humanism is going to solve all the earth's problems, which it won't. We've been trying that for a long time. Um, we have this silly idea that uh, only in the last uh, 100 years we're enlightened, we're intelligent. If you read what the ancients did and the things they built, they were pretty smart, pretty intelligent. Intelligence didn't increase, okay? Uh, they were incredibly smart people without computers and stuff that we have to help us along. But secular humanism is not going to solve the problem. I think the frustration to believers is we want to see it happen soon. I'm going to get to that point. That's kind of neat too. But God... And I say, but God, because that's the best phrase ever. Yes, this is happening, but God. Yes, this is depressing, but God. And that's why I smile. That's why I can have a good attitude. Not because I'm wacky, although some make the argument that I probably am, but it's the fact that I know that God has a plan, and it's just a matter of time before he reveals that plan. And I'm hoping it's in my lifetime, and I think it will be, but that's just my opinion. Verse 5, continuing on. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, 
or the sevenfold spirit of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So three out of five is one worthy to open the scroll has been found. Now, I can almost see, and I'm paraphrasing, John's weeping. And if you read the original language, he's sobbing. He's thinking, wow, I was brought up to heaven to see that this is good. This, nothing's going to happen. This is terrible. I can almost see the elder saying to John, hey, psst, I've been here a while. Don't weep. Watch this. It's going to get good from here. You know, it's when you see when you've seen a movie and then somebody's next to you and they haven't and they say, oh, this is terrible. And you're like, shh, watch this. Just wait a few more seconds. It's going to get good from here. So Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's the lion. Genesis 4, 49 tells us that. But here he's presented as a lamb. That's why we refer to Jesus as the lion and the lamb, because he has both characteristics, you know. Um, he came really as a lamb first to die for our sins, but when he comes back, he's coming back as the lion. No discrepancies. He has a dual nature. Um, Isaiah 11, he says he's the root of David. The religious leaders had a really hard time with reading the scripture and uh, the part where, you know, David calls his, well, he calls Jesus Lord or God, but Jesus was in David's line. That's a, a mind teaser. You know, he's his great, 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 great grand, grandson comes in the form of a man. But in the spirit, David calls him God. How is that possible? Because he's the root of David. He came in David's line, but before he took the form of a man, he was fully God. And he still is. And he always was. So it's the religious leaders with all their studying of the scripture had difficulty with that particular portion of scripture. Because we're men and women. We don't, you know, we try to reason, but how do you outfigure God? You don't, you know, that's why he's God and we're not. So we see this. Um, how does he prevail? The Bible said he prevailed. He prevailed on the cross. Jesus reversed the curse of sin, redeemed us spiritually. Here he's now coming to redeem the physical creation. Remember the first time was spiritual. Souls, most important to God, priority. Next time he comes, all the other stuff. He's going he's gonna to redeem that too. So there's an order here. Verse 6, the description of Jesus. This is tough. And, you know, sometimes Bible teachers kind of kick this back and forth. They ponder it. Well, what is exactly? He, so John looks and he sees Jesus, but he looks like a lamb that was slain. What's going on here? There's something about Jesus that when we see him in heaven, we're never going to be able to forget the fact that he redeemed us. That the reason when we step, step, do you have feet, do you have legs? I have no idea. We have 1 Corinthians 15, these incredible redeemed, remade spiritual bodies. That's good because I'm, I'm a few surgeries, you know, I'm just, I don't want to go back to the surgeon. So I'm hoping the Lord comes soon because, you know, as you get older, you got more problems with your body. So, but when we, when we make our entrance into heaven, right, as believers, there's something about Jesus that for eternity, we're not going to be able to forget that he, that the reason why we're physically and spiritually there is because of him. And I think that's great because even as human beings, we forget somebody does something really wonderful for us. Two years later, we're like, well, what have you done for me lately? You know, we get some type of blessing. We, you know, 
relationships, we forget. You know, God was so clear about the Passover because he didn't want the Jews to forget. Jesus was so clear about communion because he didn't want us to forget. So when we get to heaven, there's something about Jesus that, I don't know, does he still bear the marks of the cross? Probably. We'll always know every time we look at him that he loved me so much and I'm here because of him. So it's very powerful. Um, If you read it wrong, it's grotesque. You know, a little slaughtered lamb and seven eyes and seven horns. Ah, it's Jesus. Is it, is it that he sees, John sees him symbolically? And these things are a reflection of his character? So Chuck Smith always said, if your interpretation of the Bible is bizarre, you have the wrong interpretation. He just was the king of simple idioms. Um, but that's true. If you look at it, you go, oh, it's frightening and you're a born-again believer, you need to pray about that passage because you're not reading it right. So, but I still believe, is it, you know, remember when Jesus was resurrected and doubting Thomas, he said to the disciples, I don't care what you guys say. I know we hung out for years, but unless I take my fingers and put them through the wounds in his body, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus appeared to him and said, go ahead. Russian hands and Roman fingers. You know, his fingers were going everywhere. And he said, my Lord and my God, powerful. So, yeah. <laughs> Seven horns. Um, we're going to talk about horns. They're symbolic. We, we see that as we go further into the book, omnipotence, power. And there's a whole reason with monarchies and conquerings why that is. So Christ is the slain lamb. Remember, in the Old Testament, the lambs were slain for the sins of the people. So Jesus fulfills that and he was slain for our sins for all eternity. We don't need sacrifices anymore. We don't need priests anymore. Um, those things are over. People still do it, but they don't need to because Jesus fulfilled it. He's the perfect sacrifice. When we try to add to what Jesus did on the cross, we're insulting the, the Lord Jesus. That's like if you get a gift that's priceless, it's just a priceless gift and you go, here, I'll give you 10 bucks for it. That's insulting. Jesus, you can't add to his sacrifice for our sins. The seven eyes, the picture of knowledge, wisdom, omniscience, we covered this. The seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God, we covered this in Isaiah 11. Um, The sevenfold, seven, 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 it's that number of perfection that God has. So Jesus takes the scroll. You know who didn't try to take the scroll? And he's a squirrely character and he's been around for thousands of years, Satan. You ever wonder why Satan didn't go, hey, let me try to take that scroll? Because Satan is smart enough to know that wouldn't have been a good idea. (laughs) He would have been immediately toast. Let's just let Jesus do this. Remember, Satan has been at God's court before. Remember, Pastor Paul is covering the book of Job on Wednesday. And, um, you know, Satan went before that court. And he argued about Job and his character. So Satan has been in God's presence before on a limited basis. Here, you don't see him. Any of his fallen angels, they're not there either. So Jesus takes that scroll. Again, people grow up in religions and then they find the truth. And the religions they grow up in takes the Lord's power away from him. Jesus is not fully God. Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. All these wacky things. But when you actually, if you read Revelation, if you had a question about the deity of Christ, by the time you're done with this book, you won't. 
<laughs> you won't. Verse 6, Jesus is in the midst of the throne. He's in the midst of the throne. And folks, we have to ask this question. Is Jesus in the midst of our life? You know, you got, the, you got God, you got the God, the father, you got the sea of glass, you got the angels, you got the elders, you got the living creatures. It must be a really big hall. <laughs> and uh, Jesus is right. He's the focal point. And I, I don't know, is there a panoramic, panoramic view where everyone had their section? And they're all focused on Christ. If we are living through this time and we are watching too much TV and we're, it's, letting, it's changing our demeanor, then the TV is the center of our life and Jesus isn't. And every Christian has to look at that. And, you know, God wants us to live with peace. He wants us to live with hope. He wants us to live with certainty. Christ has to be in the center of that. Amen? So I actually, um, when, when I was on patrol, I worked with a young lady who got into a lot of trouble, and um, she went out to California, and um, she said she had a profession of faith. She actually texted me recently, and it's just this bizarre text about she, her needing prayer and, and all this stuff, and just the reason was odd. So I called her up, so she told me the story. I said, I have to be careful not to say names, but I said her name and I said, where's Jesus in your life right now? And she quickly answered, I don't have time for that right now. Okay. You're asking me to pray for you and I will, but my prayers are more effective when you're putting Christ in the center of your life because I'm doing more work than you are here. You know what I'm saying? And this is what people miss. And I have to tell you, over the last few weeks, I've done a lot. I feel like it's been a whirlwind. I've done um, group reconciliation. I've done counseling. I've done um, just reconciliation between parties. Uh, and it's been a lot of work. But I have to, listen, I can't, I'm getting too old to try to be everybody's savior. And it's not biblical anyway, and I don't want to do that. But when I get, bring myself into a situation, I have to bring Jesus with me. You see what I'm saying? Trying to be Jesus in somebody's life, and people do this, and it's wrong. First of all, it's a lot of work. Second of all, it's a lot of pride. And third of all, it's not biblical. So whenever I get myself into a situation that's going to be, a, and I know it's going to be a rough one, I always have to make sure Christ is brought into the situation. Otherwise, you know, it's nice that you have such confidence in me, but without Jesus, I'm nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, I'm nothing. Without the word of God as my playbook, I'm nothing. And everybody has to come to that conclusion. People still do this, you know. They, they rely on their denomination or their spiritual leader that's going to save them or their family line or, you know, well, I'm not really saved, but my family is, so they'll probably kind of sneak me in. It doesn't work like that, folks. Christ has to be the center of everything. So continuing on verse eight, it says, now when he, Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, a gold and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, uh, which is 100 million if you do the math, and thousands of thousands, an innumerable host, I'm just putting that in there, saying with a loud voice, who or worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Just so you know, if you're new to the Bible, this is a vision. John is brought into heaven. He sees these things. He's asked to record them. But from where we are in 2020, it hasn't happened yet. This is a future occurrence. And the sooner the better. So four out of five is the heavenly response to Jesus taking the scroll. Verses 8 through 10, the living creatures and the elders fall down and sing a new song. The harp is the stringed instrument. I had to laugh because I just thought of, you know, when we do, well, not we, because I, I'm not talented with worship, but the worship team, they tune things, especially the stringed instruments. I bet you in heaven, none of that stuff needs to be tuned. It probably sounds great every time. So there is a lot of worship that happens in heaven. There's these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, people have different, we're going to see this again. People have different ideas of what this is. Um, God hears us when we pray. He hears us immediately. But I'm wondering if he takes a section of prayers for the last 2,000 years and he collects, he's, he's heard them, but he collects them. And when this time comes where God says, I'm ready to do this and this is my timing, that all the prayers of the saints for thousands of years that have been collected into these bowls of incense are released. And God says, now's the time. Now we can pray for things in our life and as Christians we pray, but Christians throughout the millennia have prayed about different things too. We can pray about our country. Christians in the Roman Empire probably were hoping that it would be sooner than later that the Lord would come back. So, you know, you can have personal prayers, you could have national prayers, and you can have diachronistic prayers, things that happen through the span of time. So going all the way back to Christians, probably in the Roman Empire, praying, Lord, just come. These Romans are terrible. They're ruining this world. And he had his timing. He wanted it to be full, that as many people could get into the kingdom as possible. And I don't know his, all of his reasoning. I only know by what I read. And over, imagine how many prayers are over 2,000 years that have been collected for that particular time. And God says, release it. It's like, like incense. God says, it smells wonderful that my people have been praying for so many years and now it's going to happen it's like the ribbon cutting ceremony you know we see a lot of ceremonies in the world but boy i bet you he up there he really knows how to throw a party you know and he doesn't forget anything it's good stuff so uh talk about pixels on a tv and just imagine how when we, when we covered last sunday about the colors and the rainbows and all and the sea of glass and the crystallization and the translucency wow very exciting. Uh, words on a page don't do it justice, that's for sure. They sang a new song. Why was it new in light of the fact that somebody was worthy to open the scroll? Once the Christ took the scroll and he was worthy, the new song was sung. 
Everything changed. Worthy, tied to, slain and redeemed us by your blood. He paid a ransom in his blood. He was able, he was the kinsman redeemer. He was able to buy back not only our souls from the slave market of sin, but also the sin-marred earth. One we've experienced, one we will experience. We're in the middle of those two things. Pretty cool. Can't wait. So, (laughs) verse 9. Now, I, it's funny, in light of the national conversation, I've been, you know, I've always heard people say, and, you know, as a Christian, I, you know, before I'm a Christian, you know, you, you learn about Darwin in the public schools, and it, it's kind of sad. I actually recently bought two of his books, Origin of Species and uh, The Descent of Man, and they're horrible books. He, he talks about the natural, now remember, when Darwin died, 30 years later, the electron microscope was invented. So Darwin was wrong about a lot of things, like a lot of things. But he had this construct of race, four races, and they evolved differently, and someone's going to win. And this is the stuff that we've been le- I learned about it as a kid. I learned about it in college. It's, it's, it's an, academia has rejected the Bible, which speaks about one human race, in favor of Darwinism. And then we wonder, we have racial tensions. No kidding. Because everyone's taught to be suspicious of people that don't look like them because we're taught that somebody has to survive, somebody has to be superior, and you wonder why we have problems. I don't believe that. No Christian I know that knows the Bible believes that garbage. Wait a minute, I'm going I'm to really finish these books as painful as it is, and I'm gonna, there's some things that I found extremely disturbing, extremely disturbing. But when I read the scripture, there's different languages, there's different, you know, there's genetic diversity within every human being. Depending on where we were seated on the planet, we, our, our genetic um, uh, predispositions for survival, not evolution, we were created in our DNA with great ability and great diversity of genetic survival, predispositions for climate. So after thousands of years, you look around the world and people look different based on those predispositions. Right? If you're in an extremely hot climate, the people who's maybe through um, uh, mis- mutations or uh, defects, they can't survive there. So those people will not be able to change to, to match the climate. They'll either die off or they'll move. So when we look around the world and we see people look, oh, they look different. It's, we're talking about maybe 1% difference. We're talking about melanin. We're talking about um, minor uh, surface features. Right? You know, study, you study Darwin, but then when you study science, it's, it's uh, cognitive dissociation, or cognitive dissonance. You're believing two things that don't agree with each other, but you're married to this Darwinism. It's become a religion. See what I'm saying? But science, and I love Punnett squares and genetics. I love that. DNA and the, you know, the double helix and you know, AT and CG and how they connect. It's so cool. The nucleotides. I study this, and it doesn't agree with this. So as a Christian, I had to reject this. And you know what? My relationships with people that look different from me became vastly improved. Not that they were bad, but they're like, well, we are from the same blood. Folks, this race stuff is, we're being duped. And there's forces behind this to make it even worse. What is the, well, I'm going to get into this when we talk about globalism and the scripture. It's going to get really good. There is a, a, an idea, there's a purpose behind all this tension and division. 
And for those that are buying into it, you're being duped. I don't care who you are, believer, not believer, you're being duped. We're being sold a bill of goods. This is done by design, folks. And when the next thing happens, whatever the spark is, there's enough uh, gunpowder packed in the warehouse that all you need is another spark, and boom, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow its roof off. And I say that figuratively. What are we going to do as Christians? Are we going to live like this as a country? Somebody's got to be the peacemakers. Somebody. I often say this, that God doesn't ask us to do the easy thing because it isn't easy, but he asks us to do the right thing. Amen? So this is what we have. Um, we talked about us making a kingdom of priests. We saw that in, in Revelation 1. Uh, when the millennial kingdom comes, we'll be really as ambassadors more and representatives to the unsaved that have made it through the seven-year tribulation. Fascinating stuff. Got to get the whole, me- the whole from Revelation 1, and you'll start to really get this, the building blocks and the foundation. Verses 11 through 12, now the angels join the chorus. Again, 100 million, 10 times, uh, 10,000 times 10,000. Was it figurative or is God just saying, I have created so many things that you can't even count them? You know what I'm saying? Worthy is the lamb slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And I love that. We've all experienced, and some of you have asked me for prayer on this, we've all experienced some unfairness in a sports competition. Somebody cheats and we lose. We work really hard at our job, and somebody is friends with the boss, and we don't get the promotion, but they do. We've all experienced that. That's this world. But what's said about Jesus is he's worthy. Axios in the Greek. He's worthy. And I'm going to come to that at the end. When we see Jesus heading all this and being praised, you don't praise people because we're sinners. But you're going to see through this book, I'm so glad. I don't even have to. I just trust him implicitly. Plus, he he saved my soul. So, you know, it all goes together. And let's see, verse 13, every creature is now praising him. Um, remember Jesus in, in the triumphal entry? And uh, a lot of the followers were saying they were praising him, Hosanna in the highest. And the religious leaders were flipping out, you know, because they didn't buy the whole Messiah thing. And they rebuked Jesus. You tell your followers to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if they were to remain silent, then the rocks would cry out. I believe that was literal. And there's going to, we, we see in, in Genesis with the, the serpent, you know, some speculate that the animals had a higher level of communication with us uh, prior to the fall into sin. Even in, in uh, Noah's time, when they get off the ark, the Lord says that animals are going to have a natural fear of human beings. And you see that with wild animals, deer, coyotes, um, you know, they naturally are... And, and I think God did that to protect them because of how people abuse animals, right? You saw in Numbers, I believe it was 22, that Balaam's donkey starts talking to Balaam and rebuking him for being such an idiot and not listening to God. So you, we see in Scripture some very interesting things. Either it's happened um, specifically, it's happened in a sliver of time. But I wonder when all the creatures cry out and they praise the Lord, does that mean the dolphins, as they come up out of the water, and they start praising Jesus? Does it mean the frogs will be praising Jesus? Does it mean that the trees will start speaking? I don't know, but it's going to be, I'm just going to sit back with my popcorn, and I want to see what happens. You know what I'm saying? The whales, 
you know what I'm saying? Elephants. I'm doing animal noises now. <laughs> Not bad, right? <laughs> so, so I'm excited about that. And there's just some glimpses in the Bible that we see that make us smile. Because this is a sad world. And when God's ready, oh my goodness, it's going to be wonderful. Verse 14, last verse. He says, Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Their conclusion and ours, who is worthy? That was the question that I asked in the beginning. That was the question that was asked in the beginning of this chapter. Who is worthy? Axios in the Greek. It means to be deserving or to draw praise. And folks, Christ is worthy. He needs to do, first of all, he's fully God. So he doesn't have to impress us. He doesn't have to convince us. But he went and did something so remarkable. How do you die for the sins of the world? I mean, how do you count them? How many people have ever lived? Quadrillions, quintillions. Um, and then all the sins that each person has ever committed, he buried, uh, died for those sins on the cross, paid for them. How does that work? When you start to really get into the mathematics and the statistics of it, it really blows you away. But in this earth, we look for worthiness, don't we? Let's look at that word, right? For those of you that are single, you might be looking for a worthy mate. Is this person worthy? Can I trust them? Can I trust them? Can I be vulnerable around them, right? We look for a worthy job. Is this something that I can feed myself with? Is there job security? Can I get a health care plan through it? We look for a worthy house. That was always scary with me buying a house. What if... A pipe burst. What if they didn't tell me about, I don't know, squirrels in the attic or something? A worthy house. And folks, if we're honest with ourselves, all these worthy, 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 we look for that, don't we? It's our quest as human beings. We want to be secure. We want to be able to let our hair down in a place where we know we're going to be protected. Did I move to a worthy town? Right? What's it like in this township? Will I be accepted? And if we're honest with ourselves, with all these things, you can go on and on and on about all these things that we look for in worthiness. We're disappointed. We're disappointed. People let us down, right? Things let us down. Something we purchase, buyer's remorse, it lets us down. The job is not what I thought it would be. Now, I have this adversarial relationship with one of my coworkers or my boss. This is terrible. So we all go through a world looking for worthiness. But I'll tell you, one is worthy, and that's Jesus Christ. And sometimes I have to convince people because they're so jaded by where we live, the times we're living in. And I have to say, Jesus is not like people. Well, what if I give my heart to him and dot, dot, dot. He's not like people. He bought you. He created you. He gave you free will. He bought you back from the slave market of sin. Is this, don't you think, with that said in the, on his resume that you can trust him? Worthiness. We live in a culture that doesn't really seem worthy. We don't know if anything, you know, the new normal, right? We're, we're told to expect less and less and less and less from our elected leaders, from our culture, the new normal. Well, how new is this new normal going to become? I kind of like the old normal, right? We don't see worthy responses, worthy again, axios from our leaders with the problems we face. Maybe the facade of a sin-cursed world has just finally been torn away. 
A lot of Christians were living the American dream more than they were living the tenets in the scripture. All that's been ripped away. And we see things for what they really are. We're faced with the truth of how unworthy this pathetic, sin-cursed world is. And as bad as things are, maybe it will get our attention to stop looking at others and stop looking at ourselves and look up. Because Christ is worthy. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we'll have peace in our hearts, no matter what happens. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.